This is 45 to 33 Inside the Music. Music and lyrics come together to create images and emotions. Now, stripped of its words, it still has the power to give us joy. Melancholia can either be embraced or chased by it. Even a rainy day may seem all the brighter with a summer tune on the background. It makes you sing out with wild abandonment. Let's look at some of the songs and bands that bring us peace, frustration, or just shared enjoyment with others. While I have done some research, I believe that all the information I share with you is correct. Now, some of the information comes from 40 years of memories in books and jacket covers and liner notes from my own collection of more than a thousand vinyl albums. Additional sources come in forms of news stories, interviews, and various internet sites, including the band or singer's own website. Please forgive me if I mispronounce some of the names and places. If any of these artists or band members want to correct me, please do contact me. Now, here are some of those trivia questions I alluded to earlier. So if you want to play along, get something to write on and write with. In some cases, these few questions can be quite obscure. Just remember, it's all in fun. The rules are pretty simple. No cheating. That means no looking it up or using a lifeline. Don't worry, I'll be sure to give you the answers at the end of the episode. So let's get right into it. Question number one. Between the years 1931 and 1968, which group had the most charted songs? Question number two. Wilson Pickett recorded a cover version of which song by the comic book group The Archies? Question number three. Who was the first black songwriter to win the Country Music Awards Song of the Year in 2023? One good thing about music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. Bob Marley. People like inventor George Washington Carver, creator of peanut butter and, might I add, one of my favorite spreads, he also found more than 20 other uses for the humble peanut. Now, civil rights icon Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her seat on a city bus, her actions started the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which lasted for 13 months. The boycott brought about the Supreme Court's ruling that segregated buses was unconstitutional. Now, civil rights leader Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a man who devoted a good portion of his life to ending racial inequality through peaceful resistance to unjust laws. As this program is about music, today we will be looking at those black musical artists that created or improved the music that we are fortunate to hear to this day. Some of these artists are true musical pioneers. Both their music and their contributions still reverberate today. These same artists I talk about have all had successful careers. However, because of the times they lived in, all would have to struggle just to get the music out into the hands and ears of the general public. They fought to make their ways into clubs that refused to allow black performers in because of the color of their skin and not their talent. For all their efforts and determination, artists today have a much easier time recording and producing their own music. They are now able to claim their fair share of the musical industry in modern times. Who could have known that when Eunice Kathleen Wayman was born in 1933 that one day she would rise to fame as the artist famously known to the world as Nina Simone. This American singer-songwriter and pianist was also an activist in the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement. Nina herself was a victim of racial discord and was exposed to it firsthand in the latter part of her education. 
Eunice dreamt of one day becoming a concert pianist. With her community's help, money was raised in aid of her attending Juilliard School of Music. She studied hard and learned classical piano. During her time at Juilliard, she applied to gain a scholarship at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. She was denied admission despite a flawless and well-received audition. She attributed this to racism. Years later, in 2003, this very same school would award her with an honorary degree. To support herself, she taught piano and performed in Atlantic City nightclubs playing piano. She worked under an assumed name, not to disgrace her family's name. You see, the music she played would be considered the devil's own music by her family and their friends. So, she changed her name from Eunice Wayman to Nina Simone. The name is derived from a nickname from an old boyfriend. Nina is actually the Spanish word for a girl or a child. Oddly enough, more than some 30 years later, another singer would take on the same nickname, one she had gained during a vacation in Spain. That artist was German singer Nina. Now, Nina had a huge hit in 1983 with the song 99 Left Balloons or 99 Red Balloons. Nina would take her last name from the French actress Simone Signorette, an actress she'd seen in the film once. In the clubs, she was expected to not only play piano, but also to sing as well. Despite her own misgivings and her need for sudden income, she agreed. Simone's musical influences included jazz and classical. To that end, she played a fusion version of the two. This sound led to her building a small but loyal fan base. With a newfound confidence, she submitted a demo of songs she recorded during a performance. The demo found its way to Sid Nathan, owner of Bethlehem Records. They would sign her to a record deal. Her 1959 debut album was called Little Girl Blue. One track included the song I Loves You, Porgy from the Ira and George Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess. Nina released her rendition of My Baby Just Cares For Me, a song that has been previously recorded by Nat King Cole, Tony Bennett, Dean Martin, Mel Torme, and Count Basie, just to mention a few. In my research, I had no idea the number of well-known singers who had recorded and released this song. The song was another track from the debut album Little Girl Blue. The tune did not chart in North America. It would take almost 30 years for it to chart better. In 1987, the song made its way all the way to the top 10 charts in UK at number 5, number 8 in Austria, number 3 in Belgium, and number 1 in the Netherlands. So why the renewed interest in the song 30 years later? it would seem that the song had been used in a European perfume commercial. From there, it simply took on a whole new life. In the end, My Baby Just Cares For Me would become her signature tune, which she performed in all her shows for the remainder of her career. Back in 1964, Simone wrote and recorded the song Mississippi, God Damn. It was written as an alternative to murdering someone. She said this about that moment, and I quote, At first, I tried to make myself a gun. I gathered up all the materials. I was going to take one of them out, and I didn't care who it was." End quote. Her outrage was directed at those responsible for the racist bombing of an Alabama church that killed four children. Instead, she used her voice and the song to speak out about social injustice. It would increase support to the civil rights movement, to speak out against violent crimes directed at black Americans. Simone would garner many achievements in her career. In 2002, the city of Nijmegen in Netherlands named a street after her as Nimon Simon Street. She lived in Nijmegen between 1988 and 1990. 
Simone would be inducted into the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame in 2009. In 2010, a statue in her honor was erected on Trade Street in her hometown of Tryon, North Carolina. Simone was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. Nina would be the subject of many books and plays and documentaries and inspired poems. Once I understood Bach's music, I wanted to be a concert pianist. Bach made me dedicate my life to music. Nina Simone. New Orleans' legendary son, Antoine Domino, was born on February 26, 1928. Of course, we all know him better as Fats Domino. He was born the youngest of eight children in a home environment full of music. His father was a part-time violin player and a full-time racetrack worker. At the age of 10, the Domino family inherited an old piano. By fortune or by fate, his brother-in-law, Harrison Burnett, a jazz musician, wrote down the notes on the keys and taught him a few chords. With those few little notes, he taught himself to play the piano. Throwing himself into the piano and listening to other seasoned musicians on various recordings, his talent only grew. He learned to play songs after listening to the records four or five times. He was able to hear every single note and then he simply reproduced them exactly. Domino attended Lewis B. McCarty School but dropped out in the fourth grade to get a job. While working, he kept playing his piano and practicing. In 1947, a New Orleans band leader, Billy Diamond, heard the young pianist at the backyard barbecue. He liked what he heard and he asked him to join his band, the Solid Senders. It would be Diamond who nicknamed him Fats, a name that symbolized wealth and importance of the times, because he reminded him of the pianist Fats Waller and Fats Pichon, both of whom were rotund players. In 1949, Domino partnered with the talented jazz trumpet player David Bartholomew. They produced and co-wrote Fats' first record, The Fat Man. The song was a hit rising to number two on the R&B black charts. According to Billboard, he had 39 songs that landed in the top 40 R&B singles chart and pop chart. Now I want to talk about his first song to reach the Billboard pop singles chart, Ain't That a Shame, with writing credits going to both Domino and Bartholomew. The song was listed as Ain't It a Shame on the charts and debuted at number 14. It would finally settle down to number 10. It would eventually sell more than a million copies. It made it to number one on the Billboard R&B charts. That same year, the clean-cut white singer Pat Boone covered the song on his debut album, Pat Boone. His version was an instant success, making it a number one hit on the pop charts. It was his first number one hit. The way I heard it, that Pat Boone wanted to change the lyrics to Isn't That a Shame to make it more acceptable with its white audiences. However, the producers talked him out of it. I think they thought whitewashing it would not appeal to the black community. Whatever the case, Boone recorded the song as originally written. He was able to attract the attention of both audiences. Despite the more successful ranking of his version, he unintentionally increased the interest in Domino's music. I think that the fact that Boone was a white performer and Domino was a black performer played a big role in its success. At that time, black rock and roll music was still considered unrespectable music. At a time when black men were being lynched, it was still not the best period to be a black artist. In many states, their music was outright banned altogether. Much of the African American songs were covered by white performers where the music was deemed acceptable. 
Many black artists could not even play their own original songs in clubs as they were not allowed in the venues. It was white disc jockeys like Dewey Phillips, William Allen, and Alan Freed who preferred to play only the original black recordings on air. I mentioned earlier that Ain't That a Shame has been covered by hundreds of bands and artists. The Four Seasons in 1963, John Lennon in 1975, Paul McCartney in 1988, and most prominently by Cheap Trick in 1978, among others. In 1978, Cheap Trick released a live rock version of Ain't It a Shame off their album Cheap Trick at Budokan. The recordings renewed interest in Fat Domino's music to a younger audience. Fats Domino was known for his high-energy piano style and exciting voice and helped carve out his place in rock and roll history. Fats Domino was among the first musicians to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1987. In 2004, Rolling Stones magazine ranked him number 25 in its list of 100 greatest artists of all time. When it comes to soul and gospel music, one of the names that is mentioned most often would likely be Ray Charles. He was born Ray Charles Robinson in Albany, Georgia in 1930. The odds are slim to none that any true fan of music anywhere in the world is unaware of the name Ray Charles. He began his music career at the tender age of five, playing piano in his neighborhood cafe. However, by the age of seven, he completely lost his vision. His mother sent him to the school for the deaf and blind in St. Augustine. In school, he gave his full attention to studying music. There he would learn to read, write, and arrange music in Braille. He also learned to play the piano, organ, sax, clarinet, and trumpet. By the age of 15, he dropped out of school to earn a wage playing piano. Now here's where things get a little muddy for me. I cannot find any recordings from this period to confirm this. On the other hand, I found out that more likely the truth is he formed or joined a band named the Maxon Trio, playing the blues and jazz. I found what I believe is the only single they released under that name called Confession Blues in 1949. The song was pure blues, most noticeably with Charles's voice and pianos up front. The song was their first national hit, soaring to the second spot on the Billboard Rhythm and Blues charts. During his time with the band, Charles would be known as R.C. Robinson. While still playing with the trio, Charles also managed to arrange songs for other artists, including Cole Porter's Ghost of a Chance and Dizzy Gillespie's Imano. A couple of years later, Ray would leave the group to pursue a solo career. From then on, he would use his first two names, Ray and Charles. On his tours, Charles would have to stay in segregated motels in the South, he recorded two R&B hits under the name Ray Charles. The songs were Baby Let Me Hold Your Hand, released in 1951, which reached number five, and Kissin' Me Baby, coming in at number eight in 1952. Charles brought a variety of sounds into his music. His fusion of blues, jazz, rhythm and blues, and gospel styles helped him create a new musical genre known as soul. In later years, he would also integrate country and pop into his musical repertoire. Throughout his career, he has amassed several top 40 hits. For me, there is no greater song to prove he deserves to be called the grandfather of soul than Georgia On My Mind. This would be the song he was most associated with. In 1930, the song Georgia On My Mind was written by singer-songwriter Hokie Carmichael and Stuart Gorell. 
The first recording was that same year and sung by Carmichael himself. To me, Carmichael's singing voice is a cross between Clark Gable and Mel Torme. His recording did not do well in the record stores. However, the song would gain more traction later as it was recorded by others. was the first to chart the song in 1931. Frankie Trambauer was the first to chart the song in 1931. On Charles' 1960 album, Genius Hits the Road, the album was a collection of songs written about various parts of the United States. Songs like California Here I Come, Moonlight in Vermont, and Blue Hawaii. Adding to these was the track Georgia on My Mind, yet another song referenced to the US. The album itself peaked at number nine on the pop album charts. Georgia on My Mind would prove to be the first of his three career number one hits on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Now I remember hearing a story about how either Charles or his record company did not want the song to be recorded. The song was thought to be too country. April 1979, the song that was not supposed to be recorded, his version of Georgia on My Mind was proclaimed the official state song of Georgia. Until the end of his career, this song would always be an audience favorite all his shows. Billy Joel was such a huge fan of Ray Charles that he even named his daughter after him, Alexa Ray Joel. He asked permission beforehand from Charles. It would be in 1987 that Billy finally got his chance to work with his idol. He and Ray Charles sang the duet, Baby Grand. This single peaked at number 75 on the US Hot 100 chart and number three on the adult contemporary chart. In 1999, Joel accepted the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame award. On stage with him was Ray Charles. It was Charles who inducted Billy into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. During his speech, Joel spoke about African Americans not being allowed to buy affordable homes, how he found out decades later that Levenstown, the housing development he and his family were living in, refused to sell to blacks. It was not the epicenter of soul music. He said, and this is a direct quote, so where were we going to get soul? You know, where were we going to find the soul of America? And you know, we got it from the radio. We got it from rock and roll music. That's where we got it from. And I'm not talking about Pat Boone, and I'm not talking about Fabian, and I'm not talking about Frankie Avalon. I'm talking about Ray Charles, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and Fats Domino, and Wilson Pickett, and James Brown, and Otis Redding, and Little Anthony and the Imperials, and Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. That's where we got it. In his lifetime, Ray would achieve several honors. In 1972, Ray Charles made his very first trip to Israel. Now, while he had been all over the world touring, he had never been there before. He said he had never in his life been so blown away by the enthusiasm of the audiences there. He and his band played there for two weeks and visited many of the holy sites. At one point during his stay there, he sang Hava Nagila with a group of small children. In 1976, B'nai B'rith honored Ray Charles as its man of the year. In his acceptance speech, he said this, Even though I'm not Jewish, Israel is one of the few causes I feel good about supporting. He was presented with the Golden Plate Award from the American Academy of Achievements for the Arts in 1975, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1981. In 1986, he was among the first group of inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, winner of no less than 17 Grammy Awards over the years, and honors too many to mention. Ray Charles passed away in 2004. 
At his funeral, there was a long list of musical figures in attendance. There was a variety of musical tributes performed by Glenn Campbell, B.B. King, Wynton Marcellus, and Stevie Wonder. With his trademark black sunglasses, his famous smile, his unique style of playing piano, and that voice that made any song sound that much stronger were just some of the traits that made up the icon that was Ray Charles. So now, here are the answers to the questions I asked you earlier. Question number one. Between the years 1931 and 1968, which group had the most charted songs? Answer, the Mills Brothers. Question number two. Wilson Pickett recorded a cover version of which song by the comic book group, The Archies? Answer, Sugar Sugar. Question number three. Who was the first black songwriter to win the Country Music Awards Song of the Year in 2023? Answer, Tracy Chapman for Fast Cars as recorded by country singer Luke Combs. Well, that just about wraps things up for me. Now, go out there and explore this Black History Month. Find the information that is important to you. You may want to delve further into more information on Afro-American music, perhaps major inventors of everyday products. Look to the stars and find out how black people helped to win the space race. Whatever it is, keep learning and sharing. Well, this brings us to the close of the episode. I do hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did producing it. A big shout out to my friend Michael Dome for your words of encouragement. It was your words that helped me decide to put this podcast out there. As ever, I wish to thank David O'Hearn for his wonderful music. David is a gifted singer, songwriter, and musician. He currently plays in a number of bands when he's not producing other musicians in his home studio. To hear more of his music, you can go to his website at played.ca. That's P-L-A-Y-D dot C-A. So join me again as I take a deeper look at some of the songs and the artists on 45 to 33 Inside the Music. And remember, when there's nothing else, there's always music. <laughs>